Well, in our very first year in psychology class in, uh, in my undergrad, we, we studied the bystander effect, also known as the Genovese syndrome, because there was a 29-year-old Italian-American uh, young lady by the name of Kitty Genovese, and she lived in New York City. Um, on March 13th, 1964, at about 1 a.m., she returned to the apartment building where she lived. She parked only about 30 yards away from uh, the entrance to her apartment building, and between her car and the building, she was attacked uh, by a man, and she was stabbed twice, um, and she screamed out for help and continued screaming. The, the attack lasted about 10 full minutes, um, and she just lay uh, completely unconscious in the parking lot um, for a few minutes, and then the man returned and assaulted her and stabbed her several more times. Uh, the, the whole thing, the entire attack spanned 30 minutes, during which time not one of her neighbors called the police. Nobody called the police at all. And so afterwards, this was studied, and uh, a journalist from the New York Times went and interviewed this apartment building full of people and compiled all of their excuses for not calling the police. And the most common one was that they thought someone else was going to call. Um, one person actually admitted that he turned the volume on his TV up so that he couldn't hear her screaming. Another one said, I just didn't want to get involved. But as I said, most of them thought someone else was busy calling the police. So they, they were just kind of at their window watching this thing unfold and thinking someone else was doing it. And this became known as the bystander effect, the, the idea that when somebody is in trouble, somebody should do something about it for sure, just not me. Uh, that whatever's happening is always somebody else's problem. Genovese syndrome is as old as mankind. Uh, Cain facetiously asked God, am I my brother's keeper? Well, Jesus addressed this spiritual and social malady in one of the best-known parables of all time, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Um, this is uh, in a crowd of people after 72 evangelists have returned and Jesus has been uh, responding to them. Uh, last week we saw how Jesus publicly praised his father for hiding the truth from the wise and understanding who rely on their education, rely on their intelligence, and revealing himself rather to those uh, who were children uh, trusting in him, people who were humble, people who weren't putting trust in their own wisdom. And now uh, what happens right afterwards, Luke puts this parable of the Good Samaritan as a response to something that happens, kind of a case in point of people who are wise and understanding and think of themselves that way and how God has revealed the truth not to them, but hidden it from them. And so we, we meet this guy here. We're going to see exhibit A of the wise and understanding who trust in their qualifications. And, and we'll see this unfold in three scenes. The, firstly, the loaded question, um, the shocking story, and the convicting application. And we'll see all three of those here. So first, the, the loaded question, it helps us understand what Jesus is responding to. Let me read for you from verse 25, Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up. So right after Jesus talks about this, um, this wise and understanding, these people having a, uh, the truth hidden from them, the next thing is, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, well, the law says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This is a combination of Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 and Leviticus 19 verse 18 that he's kind of conflating there. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, or to vindicate himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? So stop there for now. Uh, often we dive into the story of the Good Samaritan and we kind of forget the context. Like Jesus is giving the story in response to a particular question. That's going to help us interpret the story. You don't want to just read it and see, well, what morals can we pull from this? What is Jesus responding to when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan? And he's responding to this loaded question. This guy is a lawyer, verse 25. Don't think trial attorney like we see on TV. Um, 
think, expert in Jewish law. This is like a, a, a PhD in theology, like a, a seminary professor. That's who this guy is. He's, he's the expert in the law. And so he's asking, he, he's certainly, religiously speaking, wise and understanding. He is the poster boy for the wise and understanding. So, so bear that in mind. Jesus is just praise God for not revealing himself to the wise and understanding who place their, their trust in their own qualifications, but rather to those who are humble. And here's exhibit A of a person who is not a believer, the way using terminology we would use. This is not somebody that is walking rightly with God, and yet he is trusting in himself because he is wise and understanding. He is an expert in Jewish law, and he is getting up, and he's questioning the Messiah, and it is not a genuine question. He's trying to trap Jesus. It specifically says, verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So this is a, a loaded question trying to trap Jesus, and yet it is a good question. It is the good question. Later on, another person asks the same question, and Jesus gives the same answer, the rich young ruler, which we will see in um, chapter 18. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice that he's focusing on what I must do, but that is a very common way people frame this idea. What do I need to do to get to heaven? Tell me what I need to do, and I'll do it so that I get to heaven. But Jesus turns the spotlight back on him in verse 26 and said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? This is a common way that uh, Jewish intellectuals would uh, converse with each other. You ask me a question, I'll ask you a question. You ask me a question, I'll ask you a question. Let's see how this goes. And the expert lawyer rightly condenses the Mosaic law from the famous Deuteronomy chapter 6 statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And as I said, he also conflates that with another text in Leviticus 19. He's covering all of his bases. You love God, you love your neighbor. And we know that even to this day in the New Testament, that gets picked up later on in the epistles. That is the whole Mosaic law summarized. That's what we now call the, the law of Christ. You love God, love people. That's Christianity. The rest of the law is ways of describing how to do that and how to apply that. But yeah, that, that's how you get eternal life. If you love God, you love people. So Jesus says, bingo. Just do that perfectly and you go to heaven. Now, why would Jesus say that knowing that sinners can't do that perfectly? It's very interesting that he says that. I mean, if you, if you came to me after the service and said, what should I do to be saved? I won't say, well, you just have to be perfect, and then you're good to go. Because that's discouraging, right? Oh, is that all? I just have to love God perfectly with my heart, mind, and strength, and love my neighbors myself? Um, Jesus is trying to make a point here. Uh, salvation isn't about a checklist of things that you do, because you can't do those things perfectly. That's why you need grace. That's why you need, in their case, the sacrificial system. In our case, Christ to fulfill the sacrificial system. And that's why Jesus came, because nobody can do this perfectly. But what Jesus is doing is, is very instructive to us in the way we relate to unbelievers. Our Savior is not trying to win a debate. He's concerned about the person's soul. He's not just trying to show the guy, listen, I know the answers, you know the answers, let's move on. He's using this opportunity of this man that's trying to test him, putting the spotlight back on him and saying, Let's talk about you. You want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life? Let's, let's play with that theme for a little. Let me see where you're at. Love God perfectly. Love your neighbor perfectly. You go to heaven. What's your response? The questioner is always more important than the question. And you see this with Jesus over and over. People come to him with questions, and he looks beyond that and says, what's, what's really going on here? And you need to remember that in your ministry, that the questioner is always more important than the question. As a Christian, there may be somebody at work who comes to you and says, um, hey, what, what do you Christians believe about abortion? Hey, what's your view on transgenderism? Why is it that most Christians vote this way or that way in an election? Don't just answer the question first. Stop and think. This is an opportunity. One soul communicating with another soul over an issue. Forget about the issue. Let's, let's talk soul to soul here. This person who's talking to me is more important than the issue that 
they want to debate or find out about or that they're curious about. And so maybe pause and ask, well, what do you think about that and why? Where did you get that information? How reliable is that information? You know, tease those topics out and then say, well, I try to draw my information from Scripture the best I understand how, and I believe that it's reliable, and, and the Bible says this. So instead of being their opinion versus your opinion, it becomes the authority of Scripture versus whatever authority they're drawing on. I heard from my parents, this is what people believe in my school, or whatever it is. And so we see Jesus trying to do the soul-to-soul here. And so what happens next? The lawyer, who knows he's not perfect, verse 29, says, Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? So the lawyer is not satisfied with, saying, with this answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you tell me. What does the law say? Well, the law says, you know, basically be perfect. And Jesus says, yeah, go, go be perfect. And the guy's like, uh, I mean, does he think that he's qualified for heaven or doesn't he? Well, seeking to justify himself, in other words, seeking to show that he does meet this qualification or trying to show Jesus that he does or make sure that he understands what Jesus is saying, he asks this question, and it's an interesting question. Who is my neighbor? Now, there's something behind this that it's helpful to know. In the same chapter that talks about loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19, verse 18, this is what it says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But notice who the neighbor is in the context of that particular verse. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against against the sons of your people, in other words, other Israelites. And then, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in that verse in Leviticus 19, the neighbor is other Israelites. So in context of that verse, it seems like the law is permitting you to hold a grudge against other people, just not your own people. That is how it sounds, right? Let me read it one more time. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your own people, the Israelites, but you shall love them, your your neighbor, as yourself. And so because of this, the Jews, quite understandably, mangled the interpretation of that verse to suit their system. And they said, since you must love the Jews, it implies that you may hate the Gentiles. Since the law says you must not hold a grudge against your people, it implies you can hold a grudge against people that are not your people. Which is not what the law is saying. Remember in Matthew 5.43, Jesus actually said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not in the Bible. But you've heard it said. You've heard it said by your rabbis. You've heard it said by your theologians. You've heard it said by the people preaching sermons on that text that, it's, that you must love God and you can hate your enemy. Uh, we'll say you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, and he teaches them a whole new standard that you need to love your enemies. So the lawyer here has a man-made system that's soothing his conscience. But he feels the itchiness of conviction. And that's what's bugging him here. He knows that he doesn't love everybody perfectly, and so he wants to make sure that the people that he does love are the only ones he needs to love. Who's my neighbor? Maybe you've asked that question before in a way that you didn't realize you were asking it. Have you ever thought to yourself, let's say you're walking, I don't know, in, near the mall or whatever, and there's a, there's a beggar there, and the beggar's sitting and he's shaking his cup, and he's asking you for some money. Have you ever thought to yourself, I know it's good to be generous to the poor, but does this guy qualify? Because he's probably going to use the money on alcohol, or drugs, or maybe there's a little brown bag next to him that looks like he's been drinking. Maybe he smells like alcohol. And so you start thinking, I know I want to be generous, but does this guy qualify? And you might decide, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give money to somebody who's going to just use it for drugs. And maybe that's a wise decision. But you're asking the same question. 
what qualifies someone for me to help them? Is it a need that they have? Is it a real need or is it a felt need? That's another way of asking the question. Somebody has a need. Is that a real need or do you just think that's a need? Somebody's run out of money. Somebody in your family comes and asks you, can you please give me a loan? Can you please give me some money just to help me get to the end of the month? And you know, well, they have cable. They spend a lot of money on cigarettes. They, uh, what, whatever, you know, they and you're like, you don't really need this money. If you cut your cable bill and you stop smoking, you'd have enough money for food. So it's not a real need. It's a felt need. Now, I'm not answering any questions at this point. I'm just showing you it's, it's quite a common thing for people to, to ask themselves and ask others, like, who qualifies for me to help them? You can imagine Kitty Genovese being attacked downstairs and all of her neighbors looking out the window, thinking, like, boy, I hope somebody helps her. And none of them think, oh, wait, this is my responsibility. Because there's a lot of people, it's somebody's responsibility to help the poor. It's somebody's responsibility to help someone in being attacked. It's someone's responsibility. Have you been driving on the freeway and there's someone with a flat tire? And you think, that guy needs help. <laughs> you know? Somebody better help him. Or it can't be me. I'm a woman. And he's a big guy with a big truck. It's got to be a man that helps him. Okay, well, Maybe. But you see what you've done there? You've, you've created a category of who doesn't qualify for your help. That's all this guy's doing. He's, he's creating a category of people that don't qualify. So he asks Jesus to kind of tell him that's okay. Who is my neighbor? So that's a loaded question. Jesus' response is shocking. We get to the second point, the shocking story. And the, the, the Good Samaritan might not be shocking to you because you've heard it so many times, but it's shocking. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, what's really cool about this, if, if you're going with us to Israel um, next year, we will get to go on that road. It's called the Ascent of Adamim. It is a road that goes um, from Jericho up to Jerusalem, obviously, and back. And, um, but it's called the Ascent of Adamim because people use it to go up to Jerusalem. And you're coming down there on the way down to Jericho. And I was just there. And it is awful. It's it's awful. I've shown you some of your pictures, remember? It's desolate as far as the eye can see. As far as you look on the horizon, there's just hills and valleys, no water, no plants, no shade. And the road itself is on this kind of steep um, embankment where you can see down to a, a deep fall and up there's like a, a little wall and you can't see what's on the other side. In other words, almost the entire 15-mile journey, you're in danger of someone lurking over the blind rise and jumping and getting you. And no matter what you do, there's always somewhere to hide. So this is a very dangerous, treacherous stretch of land. There are other ways of getting to Jerusalem, and I recommend you go those ways. This is a dangerous one, but this is the one that they're picturing. And here, this guy falls among robbers, verse 30. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This is why whenever anyone went to Jerusalem or back, they went in groups. Because the robbers are waiting for somebody that it's easy to attack. This guy's going by himself. On his way, he falls among thieves. They beat him. They strip him. They take his clothing. And they leave him, according to verse 30, exactly half dead in Dr. Luke's professional CSI opinion. Remember, this is just a story. This didn't actually happen. This is Jesus' parable that he's framing. But the details of the story are important because Jesus is showing the, the dire need this guy is in without giving the lawyer wiggle room for is this a felt need. So here's a guy. He's all by himself. There's no group. He's now left on the ascent of Adamim by himself with no clothes, which means he's baking in the sun with no shade. Um, he is away from all water. He, there's no, he, I mean, the temperature gets to 115 Fahrenheit up there. It's, it's arid and boiling hot. He, he's going to die. And he's been beaten. So there's, there's absolute, this guy has no hope whatsoever of survival at this point. Everyone in the audience hears this, knows that. This guy's going to die unless, by chance, someone happens to come by at that exact moment. So that's our scenario. And verse 31, the story continues. Jesus says, now, by chance. And I love it when Jesus is by chance, because we as Christians, we don't like it when we say, 
things like good luck or that was lucky because we know there's no such thing as luck. God's in control of all things in providence. But you don't have to be a grammar police about it. You don't have to be like grammar Nazi because Jesus said lucky things as well. And this is it. Lucky for him, that's what the word means, by chance, lucky for him, there was a priest going down that road. Now, a priest would know, according to Leviticus 19.34, that you shall treat the stranger as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So whoever this guy is, this this guy could be a complete stranger, a priest would know it's his job to look after this guy. I mean, when Jesus says in verse 31, by chance a priest came, so he's got this dire situation where this guy is getting sunstroke and dehydration and busy dying, and everyone knows the only chance is if somebody who can help him walks past, and by chance, the best person possible walks past, a priest whose job it is to care for people, who knows that, who believes his salvation depends on it, that guy walks past. It would be like me saying, yeah, I was in a restaurant the other day and I was eating the steak and I started choking and, and lucky for me, the table next to me, there was a paramedic. That's what the story. Lucky for this guy, it's a priest. But look what happens. Verse 32 uh, um, well, sorry, verse 31. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, firstly, this road is, it's not, it's not an eight-lane autobahn. You know? It is a little road. This guy is going out of his way near the edge where he could fall off to get away from that guy just a few yards away, pretending he doesn't see him. This is absurd. This would be like saying, I'm choking on my steak in the restaurant, Lucky for me, there's a paramedic on the table next to me, but he's so engrossed with his salad that he doesn't have time to help me breathe. I mean, it's just, this is absurd, the story Jesus is telling. It's shocking. But it goes on, verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him. Okay, well, at least this guy's not a priest, but he's, he's from the tribe of priests. It's the second best thing. Maybe the guy's not a paramedic, but he's a Boy Scout, (laughs) he knows what to do too. A Levite, verse 32, when he came to the place and saw him, but he passed on the other side. Now you you hit the jackpot twice and it doesn't pay out. The Levite is supposed to help. The priest is supposed to help. They ignore him. I don't want to get involved. This is somebody else's problem. This is Genevieve's syndrome. Some people live their whole lives with blinkers on. I'm focused on what I'm doing today. I have my schedule. I have my agenda. And I'm very sorry for you that you have this issue, but (laughs) don't make your problem my problem. This is somebody else's problem. If you you are a fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and and Douglas Adams, you know that there's, there's like a whole... He plays off this, that there's this, this power in the universe that they actually use to, to power spaceships and stuff uh, called the somebody else's problem, the SCP power. It's such a powerful force that they actually use it to power space shuttles and they can do all sorts of things that amazing things can be happening and nobody notices because they just put it on this like, this, like shield, this um, somebody else's problem. Everyone just ignores it. And Adams is poking fun at humanity, but this is really what we're like. I'm busy with my thing. There's someone with a problem. Somebody should help them. I'm going to pass on the other side. Somebody else's problem. Maybe you think this way when you come to church. I mean, church is the one place where you're like, okay, I'm not doing this for me. I'm going there for the Lord and his people. It's the easiest place in the world to remember that the reason we exist is to love God with all our heart, mind, and strength and our neighbors ourselves. And yet, when you drive into the parking lot, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, I really hope there's a good parking spot for me? <laughs> are you thinking, you know, I hope they're playing my favorite songs today? I hope the air conditioning's working on a day like today? You know, I, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about what you want? Or are you thinking about what you can do for other people? I hope so-and-so's there today because I know that this week they had a hard week and I want to be able to encourage them in the Lord. I really hope that so-and-so is there so that I can 
offer my services for this thing that they need. Or I really hope that I can serve in some way when I get there today. Is that what you're thinking? But Jesus is not done with his shock therapy. He's just getting warmed up here. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, where the victim was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Okay, now, as I read that sentence, uh, you didn't give me the response I was hoping. That's my fault. I haven't explained exactly what a Samaritan is because you didn't gasp and splutter and, and roll your eyes and tut-tut. Because when Jesus says the word Samaritan, he is poking the hornet's nest with that word. The Samaritans were the enemy. The Samaritans were religious half-breeds. These are non-Jews who think that they're better than the Jews. And they have had a rivalry that has been going on for centuries. Um, the Samaritans believed in the first five books of the Bible, but not the rest. And so they, they had a temple on Mount Gerizim, and they thought that the Jews were crazy and wrong for worshiping in Jerusalem. And they thought this about each other, and they hated each other. And Herod, wanting to reach out to them and bring some peace between the two groups, recently built a temple for them, and they, they, they played along like, yeah, yeah, spend a lot of money, make a very nice temple for us. And when it was done, they all refused to use it even once. They just wanted to drain his pockets because he's a Jew. So then they're like, okay, um, they, they, Jews walk an extra um, three days journey to go around Samar Samaria when they're going somewhere just so they don't get Samaritan cooties on their feet. And then there's the prank of 64. Um, 64, no, no, it's, it's six, I think this is 6 AD, not 64 AD, 6 AD. So this would have been when Jesus was about, you know, around about six years old. So it was fresh in their minds. The Jews, you know, had to be ceremonially clean when they go into the temple. So once a year on Passover, people come from all over Israel. They have to come from all over Israel to go for the Passover at the temple, and they have to be ceremonially clean. Um, and so they come all this way with all this expense, thousands and thousands. Sometimes some estimates have over a million people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And just before that happens, or just as soon as everybody gets in, the Passover is about to start, some Samaritans snuck into the temple and strewed dead bones all over the place to make the whole place ceremonially unclean so that everybody had to now wait and go and become clean. for. And so everyone who came had to go and take a bath, and everyone who came couldn't celebrate the Passover that year because they missed the date. And then three years later, they did it again! So now you've got the Jews just hating the Samaritans. The Samaritans are just messing with them. So let me say again that there's this victim lying on the center of the Adamim and a priest walks on the other side and a Levite walks on the other side, but a Samaritan... Oh, some hissing too. Let's try it. This time with feeling. And a Samaritan... Oh, yeah. Oh. A Samaritan stopped and had compassion on him. And this lawyer is like, you know, like twitching from this is, this is too much. This would never happen. This is, I don't even know if I'd want a Samaritan. I'd think I'd rather die than have a Samaritan help me. This is what the kind of people here are thinking about. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, saw him, and he had compassion. And he went to him, not around, and he bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, I mean, Jesus is just piling it on, like he's, he's helping the guy, and he's bandaging the guy, and he's spending oil and wine on the guy. And he puts, him on, he puts the guy in his car on his own animal. And he takes him to an inn, and he takes care of him. And then the next day, verse 35, he takes out money, two denarii, two days' wage, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, you take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'm in your debt. I'll repay you when I come back. I mean, this is just Jesus saying, this guy is like the best guy ever. He spends the time, he spends the money, he spends the effort. He opens a tab at the hotel and says, Bend what you got to on this guy and I'll pay it. The Samaritan here is not only acting like this man was his race, 
He's acting like this man was his brother. Why? What qualifies this victim to be treated this way? Why is he his neighbor? It's not his race. It's not his religion. It's his need. See, that's what makes somebody your neighbor. They have a need. It's not that they deserve it. It's not that they're part of the right group. It's not that, you know, Christians look off to Christians. This guy's the wrong religion. Well, let's say a different religion from the Samaritans. He's a different race from the Samaritans. They come from different neighborhoods, come from different towns. They have nothing in common whatsoever. And yet the Samaritan's treating him like a neighbor because he has a need. That's what qualifies him. So that's the shocking story. Now we get the convicting application where Jesus goes on. In fact, Jesus makes the lawyer deliver the punchline himself. Verse 36, he asks the lawyer, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, which of these three do you think, lawyer, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. I mean, he can't even say the word Samaritan. <laughs> the, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go be the Samaritan in the story. I mean, this is convicting. Whenever I read this parable, every time I read this parable, I'm struck by the, 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 the turn of phrase Jesus uses, the, the way he phrases his answer. The lawyer asks, who's my neighbor? The answer should be, well, who qualifies as the lawyer's neighbor? And maybe the answer would be everyone or everyone who's in need. But if I ask you, who's my neighbor? You respond by telling me who my neighbor is. And that could be, you know, I would think that the answer here is, you ask me who my neighbor is, so, so who's your neighbor based on the story? I guess it's everybody in need. But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, he, 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 he doesn't say who's the person's neighbor. He says, who proved to be a neighbor to him, to the victim? And the answer is that the Samaritan proved to be his neighbor. So it's not that the Samaritan is your neighbor. The Samaritan is being neighborly. Instead, Jesus says, you know, which of these three was neighborly? Which one was acting like a neighbor should act? He's not saying, what makes them my neighbor? In other words, he's not pointing at the victim. He's pointing at the three people in their responses and saying, which of these three acted neighborly? So basically, Jesus is saying to this lawyer, I'm not going to tell you who your neighbor is because then you're going to keep trying harder to earn your salvation. No, I'm not going to tell you who your neighbor is. I'm going to tell you about what neighborliness looks like so that you work on your character and realize that you need God's help for that. Because if I tell you who's your neighbor... Thinking to justify himself, he asks, who's my neighbor? I have to love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? And the answer is, everybody who God brings your need, brings across your path. Okay, checklist time. Every time I see a beggar, I'm going to give him money. Every time I see someone in need, it becomes works righteousness again. So Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you who your neighbor is. I'm going to tell you what it means to be a neighborly person, a character, a heart change. And in this case, it's the Samaritan who's acting neighborly. Can you act neighborly? So neighborliness is not about their qualifications to be my neighbor. It's about my character. Neighborliness is not about the person's qualification to become my neighbor. Neighborliness is about me. Am I a neighbor to people? It's not about being a priest by profession or a Levite by birth. It's all about your heart. And only God can change your heart. So an application for us would be stop assessing other people's worthiness 
and you be neighborly in your character. So that shifts it a little bit. So now let's say you come across the same beggar we came across earlier. The guy smells a little bit like he's been drinking. You don't want to give him money because you're going to be enabling his drinking. So what is the right response then? The right response isn't, well, he's my neighbor, so I have to give him something. No, that's not what Jesus said. He said, what kind of person are you? This person, whether he qualifies or not, is kind of irrelevant. Are you neighborly? And if you're neighborly and you have love for people, what are you going to do for this person? And it might not be give him money. Because what's best for him at that time? Maybe show him some dignity by speaking to him. Maybe offer him the gospel. Maybe offer to get him some food. Maybe tell him about the mission of hope. <laughs> maybe, maybe tell him somewhere he can go to get help. You know, it, it's going to be different for each person in each case, but it's not about that person or what they deserve or what they're going to do with your money. It's about you and your neighborliness and your, your compassion and your attitude towards other people. Now, a common objection at this point is, look, I can't take, of everybody, I can't take care of everyone who has a need anyway. I just can't. I mean, imagine what, uh, what would happen if I now decided, like, everybody who has a need, I have to meet that need. But, but think about what you're saying. You're, you're getting away from what happens by what might happen. It, it would be like if you, if you invited your friend over for dinner, you sit down at the meal, and you serve the table, and as you sit down and the food's served, they casually say, could you please pass the salt? And you explode and say, Imagine I had to give salt to everybody in the neighborhood. Imagine I had to give salt to everybody in the world. If I give you the salt, I got to give everybody the salt. If I give everybody the salt, all I'm going to be doing my whole life is serving tables. Isn't that a bit of an overreaction to pass the salt? Why? Because nobody's asking you to pass the salt to the whole world. This guy's asking you. And even if you have a big family, because this always happens in big families, doesn't it? You sit down, you realize nobody has anything to drink. And you're like, oh, there's nothing to drink. I'm going to get up and get myself a glass of water. And one of the kids says, oh, Dad, can you get me a glass of water too? And I know what's going to happen. Me too, me too, me too. Ugh. Should have just had one kid. Um, and then as you sit down, your wife's like, you didn't get me any? I just thought that was implied. <laughs> you know, it's like, so you almost want to be like, no, you all get yourselves water. What? Oh, my food's getting cold here. But you don't have to worry about that. It's not like you have to think, okay, if I help this one person, word's going to get out, and every beggar in the city is going to come knock on my door because they hear that I'm neighborly. I'd rather not be neighborly. All you have to worry about, who is God bringing across your path right now? Just deal with that. And if he brings more people, more opportunities to give Christ glory. You don't have to join Amnesty International. You don't have to join the Red Cross. You can just help the one person that God brings across your path this week. Or two or three. You know, in med school, they teach, the, they teach the people medicine. They don't teach the people who are your patients. Once you're a doctor, you'll get patients. Don't worry, they show up. You don't have to worry about who your neighbor is. You worry about being neighborly. And neighbors will show up who need help. God will bring them across your path. And so this neighborly Samaritan, he's just on, a, on his journey minding his own business, and he comes upon a man who had a need, and he becomes his business. Yes, there's scam artists out there, and so yes, you need wisdom. You do. But if a need is real, if it's genuine, then just do what's in your heart. And over time, you will start learning what's in your heart, and you'll see what kind of person you are. And if you fall short of who you know you want to be for the Lord, then you go to him for help because only he can change your heart. So the story of the Good Samaritan is not laying a burden on us. It's freeing us from the burden. You can't love everybody in the world the way you're supposed to. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And you cannot love your neighbors yourself. So go to God and ask him to help you. One day at a time, one one opportunity to give him glory at a time and he will give you grace for that opportunity. Is this challenging? 
Yes. Is it higher than the normal standard that the rest of the world is operating on? Absolutely. But if you're going to be fulfilled in your calling to be like Christ and to give him glory, you cannot become an uninvolved bystander. A neighbor in need is not somebody else's problem. It's your problem. So don't succumb to spiritual Genevieve syndrome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing parable that's so convicting and so instructive. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us wisdom this very week, that you would convict us of, opportunity, of, of times that we fall short and that you would comfort us and draw us to Christ and give us opportunities uh, to, to bless you and to worship you, Lord Jesus. Have your spirit work in us that we can become more like you and that we would be like the Good Samaritan in your story, that we'd be a neighborly person that you can use mightily for your glory and your kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, we have 10 minutes for Q&A. Any questions? Yes, Chris. A little provocative. Yeah, don't ask the questions you asked me at lunch today. <laughs> who was the, I missed the, who you were talking of? Julian the Apostate in the first century. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great insight. Um, so let me just repeat it for the camera. So uh, right in the first century, Julian the Apostate, a Roman emperor, he, he mentions that one of the things he notices about Christians is they don't only help themselves and each other, but they, hope they help everybody that they come across. And then you kind of see this through the history of Christianity, um, uh, including the Victorians and the Puritans, and wherever Christians go, they establish hospitals and they establish schools and they do what's good for the community. Um, and they're, you know, they establish the Red Cross and all these things. They're establishing um, organizations to benefit society. Um, and then your comment was somewhere in the 20th century. Is that where you wanted to put it? Sure. Somewhere in more modern history that reputation of Christ Christians tends to taper off and you see less of that. And he's asking me to comment on that. And my take on what's happening there, and I would grant you that that's true. I think that if you went back to, let's just go to, you know, America during the 1700s, you're going to see the vast majority of charitable work being done in the country is being done by Christians. I think that would be a fair statement that historians would agree with. They're the ones planning schools. They're the ones planning hospitals. They're planning universities. They want people to be literate and educated and healthy, and they're helping, and they're giving money to the poor, and all this kind of thing. Um, and I think you would say the same to, for the 1600s in, um, in England, in Europe. And I, I just think where, wherever you saw Christians, you saw that, and now you see that less. And I think the way to account for that is the 20th century is the century in which it's easiest to call yourself a Christian so you have a larger number of non-believers who aren't acting like real Christians because they're not real Christians. And so it is tainting the witness of the church. But wherever you go and you find a group of actual believers, that's still happening. It just looks like it's happening less in the world by Christians because now there's other organizations doing it. You know, you've got the Red Crescent coming up and the Muslims doing it. You've got Mormons doing stuff as well. And as, as Christianity got um, overshadowed by many other false religions spreading and Christianity itself is diluted because the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians are not Christians. Um, you know, the latest estimates 
of the population of the planet that is Christian is over a billion people. There are not over a billion Christians on planet Earth. That includes the Catholic Church, for example. Um, so I think that that's part of the problem is of these billion people, um, you're not seeing as many of them engaged in this type of charitable work of the Good Samaritan as, as you would have seen in past years. That's just my opinion. I don't, I'm, I'm not an expert in that field enough to say, but that's just what I, that's how I'd answer that question. I, I think a, a lot of the questions I have and the, kind of like the, the, the mystery of what, what I look at society and I wonder what's happening in the churches, I have to keep reminding myself there are way more unbelievers in the church today than we realize. And once you grant that, that most of the Christians you know are not Christians, I wouldn't say it that way. I would say many of the Christians you know, people who call themselves Christians, are not actually Christians and don't even know it. Once you realize that, everything starts making a lot more sense. You know, like one of the statistics is that the divorce rate among Christians is the same as the divorce rate in the church, which is about 50-50. Um, 50% of marriages end in divorce in the church or out the church. And somebody once said that in a Q&A for John MacArthur, what do you think about that? And he said, I don't believe it. And they were like, oh, no, 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 that's what Barna's uh, survey says. He says, I don't believe that the 50%, I don't believe the people being polled are Christians. They're the world. So, of course, their statistics look like the world, you know. Because to get on Barna's list of a Christian, you just have to be somebody who goes to church. Well, whoop de do. Anyway, don't get me started. Any other questions? Danny. Yeah, that's an interesting point Danny's making that if you drill down into that research and you limit it to the number, the people polled describe themselves as regular church attenders. And I think that regular church attendance is qualified in that survey as attends three services a month. If you do that, the divorce rate shrinks dramatically. dramatically. And those people aren't even all believers. <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, it, it's just a lot of, it's just so easy to call yourself a Christian these days because there's no threat of you being killed. So why not just go with it? You know, you grow up in a Christian home, you go to a Christian school, your parents want you to be a Christian, you have a Christian wedding, you have kids, they think that they're Christian, they go to a Christian school, they get baptized. None of you is actually living like a Christian, you know, but hey, nobody's killing me, I might as well call myself a Christian. Um, and I, I think once you understand that your kids, your grandkids, your, the people in your life who call themselves Christian are, well, he says he's a Christian, but I just, he just keeps doing this whole axe murdering thing. I, I don't know what it is. It's like, well, he's not a Christian. You know, you know, please pray for Johnny. He's a Christian. He's a believer, but, you know, he's always getting drunk, and he's just moved in with his girlfriend, but, oh, yeah, he's not a Christian. Oh, if he's not a Christian, that makes a whole lot more sense of why he's acting like a non-Christian. So I think that we do a disservice when we baptize children too young because we make them think that they're believers because they got baptized young. Any other questions? Anything non-controversial? We have two more minutes. Yes, Katie. Yeah, great question. Um, Katie's question is, what is the family's responsibility for looking after widows? Um, let me just find that passage I'm thinking of here. Well, firstly, it is a um, Christian duty to take care of people who are vulnerable um, and people who can't take care of themselves. And so uh, widows and orphans are the group that's mentioned that way. And I know some of you are saying, hey, I'm a widow, and I'm just taking care of myself fine. No, that's good. But um, in their day, specifically, that was a very vulnerable group because uh, women didn't work. So if you didn't work, you had no income if you didn't have a husband. And so therefore, who's, 
whose responsibility is it to provide for those people? Um, why can't I find what I'm looking for here? Was I looking in the wrong chapter? Um, it was in First Timothy six. I didn't see it. My Bible lost that verse. It'll come to me in a moment. But um, oh, here it is. First Timothy five. I was looking in the wrong chapter. First Timothy five. Um, uh, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's First Timothy five eight. Um, and then it says this, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, she's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, their desire to marry, and so incur condemnation, having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but gossips, busybodies. Busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger women, younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So some have already straight after Satan and goes on. So, and the point here is if a woman is in a situation where she can't work, and the, who's supposed to look after her? Well, the family's supposed to look after her, and specifically the man. If the man's not able to look after the members of his own household, he's acting worse than an unbeliever, because even unbelievers know to look after their family. Um, but if there is no one in the family to look after this widow, and she's too old to get remarried and find a husband to look after her, and I'm not saying what the age that is, but he says age 60, you know. Um, so if she, she's older than 60, and she has a long reputation having been a believer. So she's not just like, I need social security, you know, I need welfare, I need a church to look after me, suddenly I'm a Christian and I'm 62 and I'm, can somebody please pay my salary? That's not what's happening, but she has a long reputation of being a believer and functioning like a believer in the church and has contributed over the years, then it falls on the church to look after her financially. And so, I can't remember exactly what your question was, but there are, there, what is the family's responsibility to look after widows in their own family? If they're older widows, it falls to a family that can help if they can. If they can't, it falls to the widow's church to help. Um, if it is a younger widow, he encourages her to get married so she has a husband look after her. Now, taking those principles and applying them to today, I would say it would be wise to look at each individual situation carefully and apply those principles because we do live in a society today that makes it easier for women to provide for themselves, especially if they're younger, um, because women can get jobs. So, but sometimes they can't. Sometimes they have to look after their kids, uh, in which case the family needs to help. And if the family won't, then the church can step in. So, but those are the principles that we would apply today.